Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Friends, it's Anna, your mentally disturbed podcast host. Today, let's talk about recycling and specifically plastic. Our planet is awash in it. Our land, oceans, lakes, and rivers are choked with plastic. It's even been found in the Marianas Trench, six and a half miles under the sea and all over Mount Everest. It's permeated the food chain and the air we breathe and falls in rainwater. Marine animals and birds are found dead with their stomachs packed with plastic garbage. Maybe you heard about that dead camel they found with 2,000 plastic bags in it, or that sea turtle with a plastic straw stuck up its nose, or maybe one of the whales that periodically wash ashore with their stomachs full of plastic bags and fishing nets. It's estimated that the average person eats, drinks, and breathes in about a credit card's worth of plastic every week. For decades, recycling was billed as the panacea that would save us from our garbage. Why didn't it work? Why doesn't more stuff get recycled? Is more education the answer? Do we just need to convince more people that recycling is important? If you're an optimist, I'm not, but if you are, you think, hey, people want to do the right thing, they just don't know any better. We need to educate them so that they can choose to do the right thing. No, just no. Everyone already knows about recycling, okay? Everyone who went to public school in the last multiple decades had the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle, drilled into our heads. If you've convinced someone in your life to start recycling and patted yourself on the back, that's great. I mean, good for you. Good job. But that isn't going to work on a mass scale, and it won't work as quickly as we need it to, because now it's an emergency. Remember, that's what we've been doing for 50 years. It has not worked. If people don't recycle, it's because they either don't want to or because they find it inconvenient. Here's the bottom line. People won't adopt anything on a mass scale until it's cheaper and or more convenient than whatever they're already doing. It's that simple. If badgering people into making an extra effort or spending more money on eco-friendly products worked, it would have worked by now. We've spent half a century doing just that and it hasn't worked. Okay, so we need to move past this magical thinking of, oh, if everyone would just do their part and recycle, because that's not reality. I know that's frustrating, but how we think things should be and how they are are two different things. And unless we deal with how they really are, 
will continue on this failed trajectory of just badgering people about their individual decisions with basically no results. About 9 billion metric tons of plastic have been produced in history. Only about 20 or 30% of that is likely still in use, and less than 10% has ever been recycled. The rest is trash, and because it never really goes away, it's still here. In landfills, in waterways, in the air, and in our food. Plastic does break down, but very slowly and only into microparticles. Larger pieces of plastic eventually break down into smaller pieces and eventually just smaller particles, which are even harder to deal with and clean up. This is the type of stuff that ends up in absolutely everything, including our air, water, and food, and it's called microplastic. So who kept telling us to recycle, even though it never really worked very well? It was those pesky environmentalists, right? They're so annoying. Just recycle. Save the planet. Hug a tree. Uh, actually, no, that's not who I was talking about. The people who actually kept pushing the failed recycling gambit were, drumroll, drumroll please, my assistant is so lazy, the plastic industry, yeah. But here's the kicker, they knew it wouldn't work. During World War II, chemical companies sprang up from the oil industry. We're talking Exxon, Chevron, Dow, DuPont, and started producing a new miracle product made from oil, plastic. And these new plastics really were incredible, strong, but light and flexible. While they came in really handy during the war, once the war was over, these companies needed a new market to sell their products to. And they set about convincing the public that plastic was what they needed. In the very beginning, plastics were considered a durable good. Back then, to people who lived through the Great Depression and two world wars, the idea of buying something to throw it away would have seemed insane. People were extremely good at fixing, conserving, and reusing absolutely everything. And during the war, they were encouraged to do so. Rubber and scrap metal were needed for the war effort. Once, my grandmother told me she used to draw fake seams up the back of her legs with an eyeliner pencil during the war because she couldn't buy stockings. Silk and nylon were being repurposed for the war. My other grandmother laughed about somebody buying a dishcloth, saying back in the day, a dish rag was just that, a rag, like even an old sock that was too worn out to be fixed again. That could be a dish rag. People weren't used to wasting things. But the burgeoning plastic industry wanted to sell more plastic, so they launched a massive advertising campaign to convince Americans not to save those plastic products, throw them away. Yes, even though it'll last up to 1,000 years, just use it once, then throw it away. This marked an era that was celebrated by triumphant headlines like No Shit, the Disposable Life 
flanked by a photo of a joyful housewife tossing a bunch of trash gleefully into the air. So convenient. It's amazing how susceptible our tiny little pea brains are to advertising and propaganda, but that's another story. People bought it, and because this happened to coincide with the most prosperous time in U.S. history, the post-World War II boom and a vastly expanding middle class, people bought a lot of it. This went on for a couple of decades until the first Earth Day in 1970 produced a massive outcry over the abysmal state of the environment. Trash was everywhere, and the people wanted action. This sent the fossil fuel slash plastics slash industry groups and lobbyists into a panic that their fire hose of disposable plastic shit might finally get turned off, and sadly, that panic brought them an ingenious idea. They formed a front group called the Keep America Beautiful Coalition and started creating marketing campaigns and public service announcements decrying littering. That's right, inconsiderate litter bugs are the problem. Overproduction and overconsumption are A-OK as long as you put your garbage in the trash can, not on the ground. Don't just throw it out the window. Most people didn't realize these anti-littering and purportedly pro-environment campaigns were actually funded with millions of dollars of plastic industry money to keep the conversation from shifting to the actual problems with plastic and the disposable life. Perhaps the most famous of the PSAs from this era featured an Italian guy dressed up as an Indian shedding a single tear as some trash thrown out by a passing litterbug lands at his feet. People start pollution. People can stop it. That ingenious marketing scheme successfully passed the buck until about the late 1980s, when again the public was getting agitated about the sheer volume of plastic garbage choking the planet. That's when the industry had another stroke of self-preservation genius and started going full bore on recycling. They started another industry front group and got to marketing. The message was that it was okay to use as much plastic as we want because we'll recycle it. Anytime environmentalists or the public started getting too vocal about plastic waste, or oil consumption for that matter, they'd just ramp up their tens of millions of dollars in ad campaigns to shift the blame to consumers. If there's too much plastic waste, it's your fault. You're not recycling enough. They were lying, but we'll get to that in a minute. For now, suffice it to say, the public once again bought their message hook, line, and sinker and kept buying more plastic. And we haven't slowed down since. Today, people produce 2.6 trillion pounds of trash every year, with Americans leading the pack at around 1,700 pounds of garbage per person per year. Lots of that is food waste, and lots of that is plastic. In other words, reduce and reuse never stood a chance. We pinned all our hopes and magical thinking on recycling alone, 
while we produced and consumed more and more and more. The global recycling rate is only about 9%. Americans aren't very good at recycling. Europeans do a little better. Figures and estimates vary, but the numbers are very low, and it hasn't really improved over time, despite decades of selling it, actually overselling it, as the solution to waste. Here's the thing. Even if people were good at recycling, which we're not, plastic specifically isn't even all that recyclable, something the plastics industry and lobby groups have known since the beginning. The processes and components that make plastic such a wonderful and versatile product, strong and flexible, are the very characteristics that mean plastics fall on the spectrum somewhere between very poor candidates and impossible to recycle. This was known from the start and is well-documented in industry reports from decades ago. The plastic industry, and especially the food and beverage packaging wing, which creates a huge portion of the single-use plastic stream, knew that the public might not like that if they found out. So they came up with another new marketing-slash-propaganda-slash-scam offensive. They lobbied states to pass laws requiring that the little triangle of following arrows with a number in the middle be stamped on every plastic product. The recycling symbol, right? Wrong. It's not a recycling symbol. A lot of people still don't know that. It's actually a resin identification code. All it does is indicate which formula of plastic it is. That's it. It was marketed to make people think it meant recyclable. And the chasing arrows mark, which actually did used to be the international symbol for recycling when used by itself, was in the public domain. So the plastic industry co-opted and used it to trick people into thinking it meant recycle when stamped onto their plastic products. There are seven resin identification codes, only two of which were ever widely recyclable. And even those two, number one and two plastics, don't recycle well. To be recycled at all, they need to be mixed with new virgin materials, and they can only be reused once, maybe twice at the most. A plastic water bottle you recycle does not become another water bottle. It probably becomes maybe synthetic fabric, for example, which, side note, sheds microplastic into the environment every time you wash it. But plastic can only be turned into something of lower quality material. That's because chemistry. Every time plastic is recycled, the polymer chain grows shorter, which significantly degrades the material. After just a couple of uses, it's too degraded to keep using. And it's cheaper and results in a better product to just make new plastic from scratch. This is different than for, say, metals. Aluminum cans are excellent for recycling. Aluminum cans can be recycled into more aluminum cans, like, forever. Glass recycles pretty well, paper less so because it also degrades as the fibers shorten with every processing. 
But certain kinds of paper can be recycled several times, maybe going from computer paper to newspaper or an egg carton. But so much of the paper produced is coated with plastic films or glossy inks that can't be recycled that actually not much paper can be recycled and a very small portion of what could be actually is. Now, all that is assuming that somebody out there actually wants to take our garbage and turn it into something new. What many people don't realize is that whoever takes your recyclables off your hands is a middleman. They don't recycle anything. They collect it, they bail it up, and then they sell it to a processor. And in order to get a customer to buy it, they need to have those bales be one type of material that is properly sorted and free of your other types of recyclables, trash, and old spaghetti sauce. Otherwise, the processor will not be able to use it, so they won't buy it, and it will become trash. For a long time, China was the dumping ground for the world's recycling and other waste. But a few years ago, they stopped taking it. What they were getting from us was too contaminated, meaning the bales of materials had so much other junk and trash mixed in that it was worthless. And as China's own consumption rose and more Chinese entered the middle class, they're now generating enough waste products to meet their own demand for raw materials without importing it from other countries. Also, China's environment had really taken a beating from taking on all that garbage, and they didn't want to do it anymore. They called their new policy of rejecting the world's trash Operation National Sword. The U.S. and other massively wasteful countries started shipping our trash to other countries like Malaysia, who were still willing to take it, until they too were overrun with plastic pollution, their environments trashed. It turned out that a lot of so-called recyclables we sent overseas never were recycled and tended to end up in foreign landfills or loose in the environment. Once the U.S. ran out of other places to dump its plastic garbage and solid waste, much of which is toxic and hazardous, it's been building up in gigantic stockpiles in warehouses in the U.S. or ending up in landfills or incinerators. The U.S. doesn't have the infrastructure to recycle domestically. It never has, and it would be very expensive to do. Recycling was always costly, but now recyclables are pretty much worthless. We can't even pay other people to get rid of our recyclables let alone get them to buy it from us. For cities that do have the option of paying to have recyclables processed domestically, they often can't afford exorbitant rates far higher than just trashing or incinerating it. Costs for domestic processing are driven even higher by your aspirational and or lazy recycling. When about a quarter of what gets thrown in recycling bins as garbage it takes armies of low-paid workers to painstakingly sort through it piece by piece, which is something else we lost when we stopped being able to export our waste overseas. It's time to stop putting an imaginary line between recycling and trash. It's all waste.
The problem is that overproduction and overconsumption will always create too much waste, but no one wants to hear that. This idea that people just need to be made more aware so that they can make better decisions about recycling and plastic waste. I'm sorry, but it's a fantasy and we have to let it go. Despite all the moralizing, it doesn't work. And I can say it doesn't work because it's what we've been doing for decades and it got us into this mess. In large part, this was an industry-created problem, and it's industry that can solve it. If you're one of those people who's obsessed with personal responsibility and you're going, you know what, if people just stop buying this stuff, then companies wouldn't make it. Okay, sure, dude, maybe you're right. But again, we have to let go of how we think things should be and act based on how they actually are and waiting for people to voluntarily stop buying disposable products, it's just magical thinking. It won't solve the problem. And that's been borne out by reality. It's just an observable fact. The world's appetite for this stuff has only ever grown. And now disposable products are the default. Plastic is hard to quit, not just because it's ubiquitous, but because it's so useful. Plastic has revolutionized just about every industry and has invaluable applications in the medical industry, just as one example. So it's complicated, and like everything in life, using plastics has its pros and cons, but the disposable life can't possibly work in the long run. So where I will say that individual actions actually do make a big difference is in that we need to demand that industry and governments take action to change the status quo. We'll need regulation of single-use plastics, and we have to force industry to create better, less wasteful packaging solutions. As long as just about every item available to buy is plastic and or comes encased in plastic, people are going to buy more plastic whether or not they want to. So using your time and energy as an individual to try to get the system to change is useful. It won't be easy. In fact, the plastic industry is so freaked out that single-use plastic bans could cut into their bottom line that they've lobbied and gotten bans on bans on single-use plastics passed. Let me say that again. It's a preemptive ban against passing a single-use plastic ban. Yeah, that's what we're up against. But using your time and energy as an individual to recycle is also useful if you can still find somebody to take it off your hands. I know, I just finished shitting all over recycling. But just keep in mind, it helps a little bit, not a lot. And it can only be one small piece of the larger waste picture. The problem is we're running out of time to avert the crisis. Analysts currently expect plastic production to triple by 2050. And there's one more problem with the plastic world we've created that I haven't even mentioned yet, and that recycling won't fix. The chemicals we're exposed to through plastics. Scientists are still trying to grapple with the possible health costs of this much exposure to a vast array of chemicals. BPA isn't even the tip of the iceberg, but just for an example, 
It's an endocrine disruptor that messes with our hormones and may elevate the risk of certain cancers. The CDC measured BPA in urine in the U.S. and found it in nearly everyone they tested. Nearly all adults and 8 out of 10 infants have phthalates in their bodies. Again, scientists are still working on figuring out how many classes of chemicals used in plastics affect us, but if any of them are as bad as they sound, well, that's unfortunate because it's everywhere. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.